This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, it's Caitlin and Taylor. Uh, so thanks for coming back to another episode of Wednesday's Women. We got a doozy for you today, controversial, if some might say. Uh, we're going to be talking about the famous Susan B. Anthony, one of the main suffragettes who helped get us the 19th Amendment. So I guess we'll just pop right into it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I can't top that intro. <laughs> you can't top you can't top the Carol Baskin uh thing I just did. No. <laughs> I honestly think I'm gonna start rewatching Tiger King, not gonna lie. Cause you you got me into it. So I support animal abuse and I support like literally two characters in that whole show, but like it was a quality show. <laughs> okay, so Susan B. Anthony. Susan Brownwell Anthony. She was born in Adams, Massachusetts on February 15th, 1820, a full uh, hundred years before the 19th Amendment actually went through. She was the second of 11 children, and her family followed the Quaker values, but they were devoted to social equality. Um, and that's, I think, it's really interesting, because if you look at a lot of the other families of that time period, even Quakers, they uh, weren't as accepting as her family was. During the Great Depression, her family moved to Rochester, New York, and this home would later be a meeting spot for abolitionists and the Underground Railroad. Susan B. Anthony worked as a teacher at Kana Johari Academy in the mid-1800s. Not gonna lie, we had to look up how to pronounce Kana Johari. Uh, her salary was $110 or $3,662.77 in today's money, which is oopy. When I told my grandmother, who's a retired school teacher, um, I said, how much do you think like 110 is worth before we looked it up? And she's like, oh, I don't know. Like school teacher salaries have always been like right around 50,000. And I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's like, so there is some variation because like different inflation rates count for different things, but it's between like 3,500 and 3,700. And so I told her and she goes, yeah, they've never paid teachers very well. <laughs> very dismissive of like $3,000. She's like, well, they've never paid us well. Yeah. I'm like, this is true. Um, and her work as a teacher is where she later became involved in the temperance movement, which was a big part of how she, I think she kind of got started as well, that and abolition was a very big part of her story as well. Um, she never married or had children. She devoted her life to social movements. I read a quote she gave where it was like, why would I have children and a husband? Because if I did, then I'd be, have to become a housewife and that would be really boring is basically the uh, review. Like the, gist of, of the gist of what she said. <laughs> she was just like, I ain't doing that. I, don't, I got too much going on. I'm not getting tied down. <laughs> um, and then she passed away on March 13th, 1906 at 86 years old from pneumonia and heart failure, 14 years before she ever got to see the suffragette movement come to fruition and them to get the 19th Amendment. I mean, honestly, I think that's like the saddest part to like devote your whole life to it and not, not going to say she didn't get to vote because she did do that, but like legally, legally. couldn't legally cast a ballot. Um, so the first taste of activism she got was actually through her parents. They were very opposed to slavery. Um, her parents moved around a little bit when she was younger, but eventually settled in Rochester, New York. And their home began to serve as a meeting place, not only for abolitionists, but also as a stop on the Underground Railroad. So... They would stop there, usually one or two stops before they made it to Canada, which is where most freed slaves wanted to go, because if they remained in the United States, there was always the risk that they would be caught and taken back to their plantation or wherever they were enslaved at. Um, she met Frederick Douglass at this location, and supposedly her parents worked closely with him. 
through both his abolitionist movements and just knowing the people in the movement from their participation. Um, so really from a young age, her parents instilled this idea that society should be racially integrated. It should be no different no matter what color your skin is. Um, this is actually a really unique point of view for the time. Even though there were many abolitionists, most of them weren't really sure what would happen to Blacks once they freed slaves. It wasn't immediately like, oh, we're going to integrate them into society. It was, they're not going to be slaves anymore, but we'll figure it out when we get there what they'll be. Which, like, if you've ever led a movement, is not how your movement should go. No. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, um, she really began actively becoming an abolitionist at 16. Um, in 1837, Anthony collected petitions against slavery as part of the newly established gag rule that prohibited anti-slavery petitions from being read on the House floor. Oh, I didn't know that, that there were, I didn't know that there were gag rules about it. Oh yeah, Congress can um, issue a gag rule, which is basically, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Um, so by the late 1830s, the House had received over 130,000 petitions to end slavery. I'm sure no one is shocked by this, but it made Southern members of the House very defensive and made it very hard for the House to work together because the Northern members were like, yeah, look at all these petitions. This is what people want. And the Southern members were like, no, it's not. We, we assure you, this is not what people want. Um, so it actually got so bad that the House Speaker, Polk from Tennessee, set up a subcommittee with several Southern House members on it to address these petitions. And the committee's recommendation was that the House begin to dismiss all anti-slavery petitions so they wouldn't be heard on the House floor. Um, and there were really two things that happened after this. First, they just started flooding them with anti-slavery petitions. Um, you know, if you're not going to read our petitions, you're at least going to pay attention to us. And they then found a loophole that women cannot vote, and therefore their petitions were not covered by this imposed gag rule, which only applied to voters' petitions. Yep. And so women would lead these petitions and send them in, and they could then be read and discussed on the House floor because they were sent in by non-voting members. Um, so a lot of women sent in petitions through their time. Again, this caused a lot of strife in the house. There was a lot of, we shouldn't even be entertaining this idea. Slavery's here forever. A lot of, we're here to lead the people and do as the people please. And they are asking us to get rid of it. Um, so nothing really came of the petitions themselves, but it just is important to note the willingness to be involved at such a young age. Anthony later helped organize an anti slavery convention in Rochester in 1851. Um, and so her organization skills in the abolitionist area really translated into her women's rights skills. Um, her, like her parents, Anthony became involved in the Underground Railroad once she had her own home and was settled um, and helped organize the escape of slaves by offering her home as a refuge. She worked with several notable um, abolitionists and underground railroad workers, participants. Um, notably, she worked with Harriet Tubman on getting slaves up to Canada. She did agree to become the New York State agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society, but she did put the condition in. Um, she had already begun her, her work as a suffragette for women's rights, so she made it a condition that she could continue to do this. Um, there was some, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but there was some incongruence kind of between the abolitionist movement and the women's rights movement. So abolitionists wanted rights for blacks, but not all abolitionists wanted rights for women. Yeah. Well, it was kind of a big deal for her to say, like, I'm going to work on women's rights, but I'm also going to work as an abolitionist. Through the role as state agent, she organized meetings and events throughout the state. She developed a reputation for really just squashing attempts to disrupt her meetings and events. Like, people would show up and they'd be like, oh, Anthony, like, 
what are we going to do? And she'd be like, oh, no, I'm not putting up with this. Like, get out. Go hold your own meeting. There's lots of meeting halls in New York. You didn't have to come here tonight. What a badass. Right? <laughs> like, someone just speaks out of turn in your meeting, and you're just like, leave. Get out. You're not staying here. And she really maintained this reputation all through her time as a state agent, right up until the eve of the Civil War. And it was just that unrest was so intense the eve of the Civil War that um, she really, previously it had been one or two meetings where there would be a couple people being like, you're an abomination, quit what you're doing. On the eve of the Civil War, all of her scheduled meetings and events had been kind of protested and people came and spoke out and said, this is wrong, what you're doing is terrible, you need to quit. Um, and it actually got so bad that she and other speakers from the events were escorted out with police protection. So really, no matter how good your reputation is at squashing unrest, like you're not squashing that. So there was sort of a lull during the Civil War in really all activism. Um, just because obviously a war on your home turf is going to take up so much attention. So she did sort of see that lull during the Civil War in both abolitionism and as a suffragette. She was still somewhat active as a temperance activist, but even then, like, are you really going to tell a guy who just watched his best friend get shot you shouldn't drink? Like, no, not really. <laughs> So Anthony was revered in the abolitionist movement. She was highly respected, looked up to by many, um, but this didn't mean she was free from conflict within the movement. Um, so like I said, not all abolitionists believed in the rights of women, and Anthony wasn't putting up with that shit at all. Like, She's just not, like, nope. <laughs> yeah, not even a little bit. So one example is William Lloyd Garrison, who was the founder and president of the American Anti-Slave Society once told Anthony to return. She was housing a wife and ch her children who had been abused by a drunken husband. Um, and he was like, you have to return these children. Like the father has the legal right of the household and the legal right to the children. If the wife wants to leave, she can, but she has to leave the kids. And Garrison actually cited laws to her about men having final say over the household and custody of children. Um, and Anthony immediately questioned, you know, how can you fight so violently to free slaves, but then you're saying women have to live with abusive husbands and essentially be trapped under the same slave laws? Like, does that ignorance not ring in your ears, basically? Big double standards being questioned. Yeah, and there really isn't anything about Garrison's reaction or how it proceeded from there but she did continue to house this woman and children until they could move on. Was also a big point of contention in the idea of divorce reform. So basically in that time, once you got married, you stayed married, um, regardless of anything. Like, husband could kill your parents and like, you're still there. You're, <laughs> you're, you're for better or for worse, and that just happened to be the worse. Um, Anthony was a very vocal divorce reform advocate and said, you know, you should be able to leave a marriage. Um, essentially, if you're renting a home from someone and they're not holding up their end of the bargain, you can walk out. You can get out of your lease. So divorce should be seen the same way. Someone's not upholding their contract. And really, marriage is just a contract between two people. The emotional contract, and I'm not saying like it's not important, but when you break it down, it's really just a contract that I'll be here forever. I'll take care of you when you need me. Like, we'll respect each other and love each other. And so when one party is violating the terms, you should be able to leave. Yep. So she worked as an abolitionist right up to the end of the Civil War. Um, and not all slaves were freed at the end of the Civil War, and that's why Juneteenth is such a big day. Which is actually the um, day we're filming on. Yes, so we film on Fridays and post on Wednesdays, so, um, happy Juneteenth, happy late Juneteenth when you see this. But once the amendments had been passed, she, she sort of fell back from that. 
She was also a huge temperance worker, which was not uncommon for people um, in the women's rights, just because if your husband's an alcoholic and he's abusive to you, you just have to suffer. Here's the worst. <laughs> and another big reason why a lot of women at that time were going into temperance activism is because you as a woman, if you, normally you didn't have a job. Very rarely did women have jobs. And if they did have jobs, their money was the right and property of their husbands. Like usually the paycheck went right to the husband. And so women were looking for these outlets where they could uh, be more than just the woman at home. And then similarly, there was this idea of, oh, there's a term for it. Basically like, it's not motherly democracy, but the sense of the, of the idea is, is that um, the mother and the women in society are the moral compass for the country. And so while you didn't have the right to vote, you raise sons who do have the right to vote. And so, and you have husbands who have the right to vote. So you are like the moral compass for them of how they should vote. And so the temperance movement was another way for them to try to like show that uh, they are the moral compass and this is what they believe to be right. And so this is part of how they kind of had their wraparound hold on society. Yeah. So it's like that idea that behind every strong man is a strong woman. Um, and we still see it today. You see moms, like, what is it? Moms against marijuana. Yeah. Um, different like mom like groups who call themselves like moms for moms against and it's just this idea that like mother knows best she's going to raise you in the best way and um but temperance was a huge movement and um it did it was both successful and unsuccessful in the idea that there was prohibition for a period of time but then there was also this idea that <laughs> people didn't like prohibition and so they asked very very nicely and then they just quit asking and then the government was like well you know what if you're just going to destroy things you might as well just have your alcohol um and it's where the idea of bootlegging came from because they would put it in the boot of a car and run different legs which were just distances you had to go um smoking the bandit talks about it not during the prohibition era but during a point where you couldn't sell certain alcohols past the Mississippi River. So that whole movie is about them running out and getting alcohol and running it back. Um, so the evils and the gluttony, I guess, of alcohol continues to be a theme in today's society. It's the idea that alcohol is okay, but too much is never good. Um, so it was just that back then, you know, if your husband's an alcoholic today, you have your own bank account, you can leave. Back then, they couldn't. They were, they were stuck. And if the husband was drinking both their paychecks away, that was that. Was that. Um, so Anthony's family actually practiced abstinence from alcohol her entire life, just as part of the Quaker ideals. Um, eventually, her father did begin to lead a local temperance movement in his cotton mill town. Um, there is some discrepancy on why some people say he just really genuinely believed that abstinence from alcohol was best some say he worked in the cotton mill and he felt like if your employees weren't hungover and drunk they were working better which is arguably true if anyone has ever tried to go to work hungover it's not pleasant you don't do well um general consensus though is that he was just very committed to his Quaker values and his temperance ideals. Um, so while Anthony grew up seeing her father as a temperance worker, she didn't immediately become involved with it. Um, in her younger years, abolitionism really took over most of her life. That was her main goal. Um, eventually, she did start to expand her activism. So while she was at Kanajahari Academy, um, she joined the Daughters Union, which was a group of the Sons of Temperance. Um, this group is actually highly contested 
just because the Sons of Temperance didn't really let the Daughters Union do very much within the organization. And the members of the Daughters Union felt like they could be very helpful to them, but they weren't allowed to speak at events and they weren't allowed really any room at the table. Um, this is actually where Anthony gave her first public speech. So at one of their meetings in 1849, she spoke to the group. Um, and that's the first record we have of her giving a public speech. Obviously, this is well over 200 years ago. So like, she could have spoken before then. And like we said we in the last remember. episode, women's history is so, because it was, it's recorded by men that who knows, maybe she did and they just didn't see it as important to write down. Yeah. So, um, most accounts say this is her first, the first record we have of her speaking in public. So her first public speech was actually for temperance and not as an abolitionist. And that could just be temperance was very packed with women because it affected women so much. Abolitionism was really men dominated. So again, the idea of not getting room at the table. Um, in 1852, Anthony attended the state temperance convention as a delegate, um, and she was sitting in this meeting, and they were calling on speakers, and she stood to speak, and they said to her, women delegates were not there to speak. They were not invited to be speakers. They were invited to listen and to learn and to take it back to the daughters' union. Um, Anthony was immediately outraged and immediately left the convention. Um, several other Daughters Union delegates left with her and said, this isn't fair, um, which it's really not. And I do sort of hate the phrase seat at the table just because it implies that you own the table and no one should ever own the table of discussion. It should just be a table. Um, so, but she technically wasn't allowed a seat at the table, um, which was frustrating to her and many women. So the women who walked out, among other Daughters Union members, um, most notably Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they organized the Women's State Temperance Society. And this was really very similar to the Sons of Temperance and the Daughters Union. It was just the idea that at our convention, we're going to speak and you're going to listen and learn, and then you'll be given the opportunity to speak. Um, so once the organization was formed, Katie Stanton served as president while Anthony served as state agent. So she was state agent for the Anti-Slavery Society, and now she's state agent as a temperance worker. So Anthony and other members of the state temperance society um gathered 28,000 signatures on a petition to ban the sale of alcohol in the state of New York um my understanding is that even though the petition was well signed it wasn't really passed um just the idea yeah um there's only so many distractions from the world in 1852 and alcohol was one of them so they were like well what happens when we take away one of these like now there are other things you can do there's tv there's you know different social clubs but back then it was really home work the bar mass chaos <laughs> essentially but i mean there's mass chaos today look at when kenny chesney comes to pittsburgh Ugh. <laughs> like like there's like no reason to destroy your city for a concert like <laughs> but people still do it <laughs> so anthony later attended the world's temperance convention in 1853 um there she actually witnessed a three-day dispute over whether or not women would be allowed to speak at this convention so it wasn't an immediate no but there were a lot of people who were like, I don't want to listen to a woman. Um, 
So that was obviously very challenging for the women who attended the conference to have your right to speak on something that directly affects you and that you're working so hard towards be brought into question. Anthony later said on the matter, no advanced step taken by women has been so bitterly contested as that of speaking in public. Um, and really that's something that's continued today. So we remember the notable speeches by men very easily, but we don't always remember the notable speeches by women. So Sojourner's Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech is very popular, very highly regarded. Most people couldn't tell you what it was about. A lot of people remember the Gettysburg Address. So just this idea that if a man were to give the same speech as a woman, it would likely be more remembered than the woman who gave the speech. And there's still an issue with women getting a seat at the table when it comes to speaking in events and speaking in public. Um, and actually, you, go ahead, Taylor. I was just going to say, I can't tell you how many conferences and whatnot I've been where keynote speakers are highly regarded men and they've done all these things and then your breakout sessions are led by women. Like, I'd like to see them like as a keynote speaker. Yeah, and then something I learned that's like a really good tool when you're in a conference or a meeting or any kind of setting where it's like men and women is commonly, like statistically, women get interrupted more than men too. So even though we have that seat at the table, it's like the plate's constantly being taken away from us. Um, and a method to try to keep that plate, you know, with who, you know, maybe has something better to say is this term amplification. So say you're in a meeting and there's a woman speaking and she keeps getting cut off or not heard. What you do is, and this is for men and women. So if you're a man and you see this happening, also do amplification. So say Taylor's in a meeting and she has this good idea and people keep ignoring her. I say her idea and I said, Taylor had a good idea. And then if they ignore me, then another person saying like, oh, that's a really good idea. Let's keep talking about that. And it's just this idea of not breaking down and just saying, okay, I guess we're not going to talk about it. It's just being uh, not pushy. That's not the word I want to use, but keep pressing for yeah, like persistent. Yes. And it is important if you're doing this, regardless of if you're a man or a woman, that you're crediting the person with the first idea. Yes. So if Caitlin has the idea and I'm amplifying it, I say Caitlin had the idea or Caitlin's idea was really good. I don't say, hey guys, what if we do this? Yeah. Because that is actually something commonly that happens is that, uh, a woman will have an idea and then a man will say the exact same idea and they'll be like, oh, that's so good. And it's like, that was my idea. So it's not even intentional. They're just repeating it like, oh, the room didn't hear it. But it's just important to Caitlin said Taylor's idea was, you know, mm -hmm. to make sure credit is given for these ideas. Um. So she watched this three-day battle about whether she had the right to speak at a convention um, and went back, worked with the Women's State Temperance Society for a decent period of time, was very involved, um, until she was forced sort of to resign. Um, not in like the we're gonna have a coup forced to resign just like we all dislike you you should probably leave so when stanton and anthony became vocal about divorce reform um specifically that allowing women to divorce alcoholic husbands and maintain custody of the kids and finances so if she can prove he was an alcoholic and was or abusive or whatever she should be able to have custody of the children and maintain finances. Maybe not all the money that was in the bank account, but at least a portion of it as she maintained the home. And that was seen as her profession. Um, many temperance workers were very opposed to divorce reform. They felt like this would ruin families and you didn't want to take kids from their dad and like all this stuff. Um, 
so they did end up resigning both Stanton and Anthony. Um, what is so sort of confusing to me is this idea that like you don't want to fix the problem you just want to fix the side effect so like no one who has good mental health is becoming an alcoholic like you're you're just not like yeah alcoholism is a genetic thing it's it can be passed down not necessarily this idea that you're an alcoholic when you're born just that you have sort of I guess more tendency, more susceptibility almost yes. to alcoholism. Um, but that being said, if you res- like sort of respect alcohol and know that it can become a problem, like you're not going to become an alcoholic. If you don't do that, you face the risk of alcoholism. So this idea that these men were perfectly fine except for the alcohol is a very flawed ideal. Like, he's not just hitting his wife because he's drunk. Like, sober, drunk words are sober thoughts. So, he's always aggressive. It's just when he's drunk, he's not afraid to hit her. So, there is still this underlying problem of, like, women repeatedly being seen as rehab centers for men, and, like, that's not a woman's job. Even if you marry, like you say for better or for worse you get married it's not your job to fix a man like he needs to seek that out on his own and so that's what's so confusing to me coming from the temperance movement like that it was just alcohol part of me wonders if it comes from like that idea of the cult of true womanhood which is where Uh, This idea that everyone had at this time period before the 19th Amendment came through where a woman, the place of a woman is in the home. She, and this was, the cult of true womanhood was mostly a women's-led ideal and like a women's-led movement where the woman is supposed to be at home because she needs to care for that husband and care for their children. Like, you're not a good woman if you're doing anything else because then you're letting down your family. Yeah, and I mean, we still see ideals of that today. Like, people refer to, like, daycares as someone else raising your children. Like, no one else is raising your children. Like, you come home from your job, you spend time with your kids. Like, you can you can have children and still have a profession. Mm-hmm. Like, but there's always going to be someone who's going to be like, oh, you're letting someone else raise your kids. Like, no, someone's babysitting my kids. Like, I'm coming home and raising them and teaching them, like, don't grab the stove when I'm cooking. That's a dumb idea. Like, don't hit your brother because he called you stupid. Like, things that you have to teach children because they're not, they're not acting the same way at home as they are at daycare. Like, I don't care what anyone says. I don't care how young they are. Like, children kind of know, like, oh, this isn't home. I have to kind of behave. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then they come home and they're like, I'm going to beat you to death with this Tonka truck. And you're like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why can't you be so good for me like you are at daycare? (laughs) Yeah, it's like whenever the mom or the dad goes to daycare and the teacher's like, they're such a little angel. And you're like, who the hell's kid have you been taking care of? This isn't mine. He's a little demon kid whenever he's at home. (laughs) you like flashbacks of like dinner flying across the table because he didn't want to eat you're like um thank you (laughs) I think you have me confused with someone but I'll take the compliment um so Anthony was very for divorce reform was very for women's right not only to vote but to run their own household maintain children and finances um And as Anthony continued to work towards these things, she began to disparage the fact that women are affected more by children born out of wedlock than men. Um, So she became very invested in a case involving a woman who was, she bore a child out of wedlock and then was accused of killing this child. Um, 
And Anthony used this case to advocate that there are no women on juries. So these men don't understand what it's like to be a woman, to be a mother. It's not really you know, being judged by your peers whenever your peers can't understand what you're going through. Yes. And she said, you know, having a child out of wedlock during this time is very hard on someone, but it's not hard on a man. You just leave. The guy literally just goes to the next town and is like, hi, I'm Jim. And everyone's like, okay. Little odd, but like, okay. So there wasn't this reputation that followed this man. So these men on the jury didn't understand, like, how damaging a child out of wedlock is, but also that a child out of wedlock is from two people, not just one. Like, there's two people who did something and now they have a kid. Like, so both should face this societal, I guess, downcast. And it's so crazy because I was just thinking about this. That's like, I think a lot of the reason why people had that ideal, especially back then, is that um, Britain, which is where you know, our early ideals came from our mm -hmm. very, like, Christian-centric society, and, of course, in uh, Christian religions, uh, if you do have wedlock, the woman is stoned. The man is not stoned, so. Yeah, there's actually very few, like, punishments for men if it's, like, a man and a woman doing something. Like, Not sure why they felt women were so replaceable, but, like, I disapprove. Well, like, there's that saying where, like, men have seed to sow for multiple places, but women uh, need to limit the crop to one farmer. Yeah. That's a little ridiculous. When I was a child, my grandmother, not the school teacher, my other grandmother, I, well, I wasn't a child. I was probably, like, in my teens, and I was complaining about my period. And she goes, you know why we have them, right? I'm like, I mean, yeah, like, I kind of have an understanding of, like, your body has to flush it out. And, like, I didn't have a baby this month. And, like, she's kind of mad that I didn't have a baby. And she went through <laughs> all this work. Like, she's angry. I get it. But, like, I'm angry, too. And my grandmother looked me in the eye. And, like, mine was not a scientific definition of cramps because, like, I'm not a scientist. And I was, like, 12. And she goes, no, women have cramps as punishment because Eve took the first bite of the apple. I'm like, I just think that's wrong, <laughs> but I'm going to let you keep that. Maybe next time you, when you think like, I should tell someone this, that's something that should stay in our heads. <laughs> Sometimes we have thoughts that aren't meant for the outside. And I think that was one of them. <laughs> that was an inside thought that you let outside. <laughs> like, oh women have period cramps as punishment because Eve took the first bite of the apple. Technically, first though, if you want to look at scripture, it doesn't say anything about cramps. It's only about birth. The only reason why birth is painful. That's because men didn't know what cramps were. Yeah, and women didn't either, like, probably. They actively, like, saw birth, and they were like, oh, my God. But, like, most women, like, your kids complain about cramps when you first get your period, but most women are just like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. So, but, yeah. So, if you ever wonder. <laughs> um, but, so... She worked as a temperance worker while she worked as an abolitionist and as a suffragette, but temperance work kind of fell to the backside once she left um, the temperance society that she had formed with Katie Stanton. Um, and by this point, she has pretty much left abolitionism and really centered all of her time on being a suffragette. Yeah. In the early uh, time of her finding her suffragette roots is, um, I think it comes from the fact that she was in a very liberal household, like we said. And so while she did not participate in the first uh, National Women's Convention that we talked about last week, 
um, I get, I would think that a lot of her ideas about it came from her sister and mother who did attend. Um, so she probably heard about it from them and they were able to uh, influence her perspective of what happened. Uh, she did attend her first convention in 1882 and served as one of the secretaries. So right away she was really like involved. One biographer said, Miss Anthony came away from the Syracuse convention thoroughly convinced that the right which women needed above every other, the one indeed which would secure to her all others was the right of suffrage. Suffrage, however, did not become the main focus of her work for several more years, as we already stated. Um, and during that lull time, she focused on increasing rights for married women specifically. So at the time, women typically did not work for themselves. And like I said, they were required to turn their paycheck over to their husbands, which is bullshit. But, you know. Like, I couldn't imagine. Like, I worked. Like You don't even get to see it. Like, it's given directly to the man. Like, and you're going to give me an allowance? Well, and another thing that I read was that depending on the job you had, you also didn't get to set your salary. Like, it was discussed between the husband and the work, and the owner of, like, whatever establishment you worked at. Absolutely not. I refuse. And the issue of that whole point, whole point is that the women's movement early on struggled because they lacked having funds. And so they struggled to try to find ways to support themselves as a organization. Um, in 1884, Anthony worked to hold conventions across America addressing the need for reform to these laws, allowing women to have control of property and similar rights like that. So having custody, co joint custody of your children and being able to have more control of your financials. Uh, the campaign finally achieved success in 1860 when the legislature passed an improved Married Women's Property Act that gave women the right to vote, or sorry, not the right to vote, the right to own separate property, enter into contracts, and to be joint guardians of their children. However, the legislature rolled back much of this law in 1862 during a period when the women's movement was largely inactive because of the Civil War, which is just annoying, but... Why are you even passing legislation? There's literally a war outside. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> and another thing I wanted to note on was the fact that not all states were the same in regards to how women were treated. So a lot of communities, property regime was prescribed. So a woman's property was held communally with that of her husband. And so such property could only be managed by the wife in the event of her husband's death. Uh, and that's only in some cases, sometimes it would just become like a community issue where they would discuss what they were going to do with the property if they didn't believe the woman had to say. Oh and God, married women's property laws in these jurisdictions were not brought into line with those in other American states until the 20th century. Um, and then the other fun fact I have about all this is that Britain didn't get these rights until 1882. Women weren't able to do anything until like 1882. Here's what frustrates me about Britain. They were so far behind us for literally so long. Like, our women had the right to vote. Our women had some property rights. They didn't have a lot of property rights, but they did have some. Like, we were doing good. And then, like, they have, now they have, like, national health care. We don't. Yeah. Like, their police aren't killing people every day. Ours are. Like, what has happened? How did this happen to us? <laughs> we were winning. <laughs> winning. Uh, as stated, she struggled until after the Civil War to balance her work in anti-slavery, temperance, and women's work. Um, however, when Lucy Stone told Anthony that her new family responsibilities would prevent her from organizing conventions like she had in the past, Anthony did step up. But I do think it's interesting because, like, Stone was still really active after this. So part of me even wonders if she was just like, hey, I'm not going to do it. You got to do it. But then when she did it, she's like, I'm here. Like she was just <laughs> trying to force Anthony into a corner of we really need you. Uh, but she presided at the 1858 Women's Rights Convention. And when the president and Anthony, or sorry, and when the planning committee for national conventions was recognized, Stanton became president and Anthony was the secretary. And so Anthony continued to be heavily involved in anti-slavery work at the same time. 
So later activity. So in 1866, Stanton and Anthony, who were very close at this time, established the American Equal Rights Association, and that organization sought for laws to be inclusive of all people in regards of sex and race. The leadership of this new organization included a lot of really prominent figures. So uh, Lucretia Mott, Lucy Stone, and Frederick Douglass. And two years later, they established the Revolution, which was a weekly newspaper. And I did a little bit of research into this because I thought it was interesting. Uh, the catchphrase for the paper was men, their rights and nothing more women, their rights and nothing less, which slaps. Um, yeah. The paper confronted subjects not discussed in most mainstream publications at the time. So it included sex education, rape, domestic violence, divorce, prostitution and re reproductive rights, which is wild because we still struggle to have these conversations today and they were having them back then. Um, and they struggled, this newspaper struggled so hard because like I said, women weren't able to fu make funding. So, and it was funny because I was reading about it and Anthony was like, it must be printed on very nice paper. It can't be written on garbage paper because it has to be seen as like a real <laughs> newspaper. And so they were like in major debt whenever the newspaper was bought by another company, which nobody read after Stanton and Anthony were no longer a part of it it completely dropped off the face of the earth. But um, another thing that <laughs> you can tell it was a newspaper of that time because the ads, Anthony refused for any of the ads to include alcohol or morphine because she was super like against all of that, um, given her temperance movement roots. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just thought it was really neat that they had this newspaper and they were just talking about stuff that was our, like so taboo then. And it's still taboo today, so you can only imagine what it kind of backlash they must have gotten. Yeah, I appreciate the topics. I also appreciate them just being like, this will not be garbage paper. Let oh, no, she paper. was like, they literally went into like over $100,000 in debt, if, from what I remember reading. And it's like, she's like, no, it has to be on nice paper and printed well, because they didn't want it to be just dismissed as... I don't know, bad? Yeah, I mean, you definitely have, like, your hierarchies. Like, you have, like, your New York Times, then you have, like, your local paper, then you have, like, your school newspaper. So we're definitely shooting for the New York Times. I just think it really shows, like, how dedicated she was to making it work. Like, she thought, like, we need to be... She knew the topics were going to be a hard point for them, so she's like, we have to be taken seriously. Yeah, no, I agree. This joke paper. So, like, I appreciate that. Yeah. Stationary quality, super important. Yeah. Um, when the 14th and 15th Amendment came through, homegirls were pissed. So, yeah. like, as we talked about, she worked very closely with Frederick Douglass on multiple campaigns. Um, and with multiple... Uh, abolitionist movements and they were under the impression that whenever they wrote the constant when they were working towards these amendments women would be included as well and that was not the case so the amendment was ratified in 1868 and extends the constitution's protection to all citizens and defines citizens as quote-unquote male and the 15th ratified in 1870 guarantees black men the right to vote so they were super mad they pulled out of a lot of different campaigns because they were just like, we ain't having it. Um, and that becomes a major point of contention when looking back on her legacy because people were like, how could she have dropped off of this? And it is, like last week we said, like, Anthony is sort of seen as problematic, which in the beginning we were like, she wanted a racially integrated society. So like that that doesn't seem to line up, but it was really here that people started to say she's not for progress, she only wants women to move forward, and that wasn't the case. It was just the frustration of, I worked so hard for you and got nothing. Like, you left me out. And another thing is I saw a lot of people were kind of putting the ideals of Katie Stanton, who was a little bit more vocal about certain things. And so, like, I know there was this one where she said, I will never work for someone of color. It was something like that. She made a statement. And I know that's like a big part of what comes up whenever they talk about Anthony because they were so close. Yes. And that is important. You know, 
Katie Stanton's views and Anthony's views were different on many things. Their views were the same on divorce reform, women's rights, but Anthony was very progressive and very racially integrated society. They should have the rights of everyone else. The caveat was she thought women should also have those rights, and yeah. that's where people started to exclude her, and I get the idea of you can only be excluded for so long before you start to say, I'm not helping you anymore. Yeah. And then 1860, yeah. And then in 1869, they founded the National Women's Suffrage Association, which would fight for the rights of women to be able to vote. And then that leads me to my favorite story about Susan B. Anthony, which is how she got arrested in 1872 because she was like, I'm a citizen. I exist. So the constitution says citizens have the right to vote. I'm going to go vote. And so she did in her hometown of Rochester, New York. But she was arrested. But, like, I just want to point out at this time, so we're thinking, you know, you go and vote. In a big city, your poll workers don't know you. At the time, Rochester was not this sprawling metropolis. Like, her poll workers for sure knew who she was. Like, she straight up walked in there. The poll workers were like, Anthony, what are you doing? And she's like, no, hear me out. I'm a vote. And they're like, no, you're not. And she's like, for sure, I am. And they're like, um, the government? (laughs) They're like, there's, like, rules against this, Susan. And she's like, no, 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 no. I pay taxes. I live here. I'm voting. And then she did. And then she did. She straight up was like, fuck. I'm voting. And then, um, after she was arrested, she spent two weeks in jail, and they sent her to, uh, to court, and the judge was all like, you're gonna pay a hundred dollar fine. She's like, I will never pay this fine. Like, she said it in court. She said, I will never pay this fine. And the thing is, they never went against her on it, because if they would have went against her on it, they would have went to the Supreme Court, and if it would have went to the Supreme Court, then that would have been a whole big thing, and they did not want the press of it. There was also the issue that the judge, so, like, when you go to trial, your judge says to your jury, you're going to go into this deliberation room, you're going to speak about, you know, is it, is it believable, like, beyond a reasonable doubt that she did this, like, he didn't do that he looked at these jurors and he said, you're going to go into this deliberation room and you're going to find her guilty. And he actually delivered the verdict before they came out of deliberation, which is unheard of. So she was given the fine. She said, I'm not paying the fine. If they had pushed for her to pay the fine and it came out, like the judge straight up was like, you're guilty. He could have been removed from the bench everyone who was involved in that would have been investigated. Like, they genuinely were just like, $100 isn't worth it. Which, remember, $110 in that time was $3,600 in today's money. So she got, like, thousands of dollars in fines and was like, no, that's not my tab. Um, And then in the early 1880s, Anthony published the first volume of History of Women's Suffrage, a project that she co-edited with Stanton, Ida Housted Harper, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And they would actually make several more volumes to follow. And then in the end days of her life, so at 80s, you're 80 years old, she was still like a boss. She retired as president from the NWSA. She was replaced by Carrie Chapman Catt. Um, they together founded the International Women's Suffrage Alliance in 1904, which is really cool. And, like, even towards the end, she just continued to fight for women's suffrage. She met with Theodore Roosevelt in 1905 to lobby with him for an amendment declaring women's suffrage. Early in 1906, just mere months before her death, she delivered her Failures Impossible speech in Washington, D.C., which is, like, one of the big things she's always credited for. And then close to her death, she said to a close friend of hers, Anna Shaw, to think I have had more than 60 years of hard struggle for a little liberty and then to die without it seems so cruel. And this was also written in her obituary that was published. And that's just like we said, so sad that she worked all of her life for this and never got to see everything come to fruition. But she never got to see it. And it's so sad because people call it the Anthony Amendment. Like, she is the face of this movement, but she never... 
like even at the time she didn't get the recognition she deserved I mean she was revered within her movements but like people in South Carolina weren't like oh Susan B. Anthony what a gal what a gal (laughs) um but yeah so I guess we'll move on to discussion questions with that sad note (laughs) with that very um depressing note one thing to note is that um people still visit her gravestone and put their I voted stickers on it um and that's like a huge tradition so it is her legacies continue continually discussed and cherished um it's just this idea that like paying their respect like you did all this work so that I could do this yeah um, and again that's a point of contention because of her roles in the 14th and after the 14th and 15th amendment were uh ratified so there are still conversations about if that is proper to do or not discussion questions so do you think Anthony would be happy with how she is remembered today I mean I think she would be happy that she's remembered, like, the, the amendment is considered the Anthony Amendment. I think she would be happy about that, but a lot of times people, I just don't think people care enough about her. It's like, well, like, you know, like, I think very few people, like, we aren't really talk, taught about it in high school very much, you know. Most people don't really even know who she is. And I think this idea that she's only remembered for women's suffrage would frustrate her. So when, when your identity is multifaceted and people only remember, like, one part of it, that's so frustrating. She was huge in the abolitionist movement. She was very involved in the temperance movement until she was forced to resign. Like, for people to just say, oh, she was a suffragette and that was it. Like, that, I feel like that would frustrate her because if people were remembering me and only remembered one part of what I did, I would be frustrated. Yep, I completely agree. Discussion question number two. (laughs) Do you think Anthony would be happy with how women's rights are today? How would you, how would she feel about the current social climate and current treatment of people of color? So first part of it, women's rights today. I think she would be very, okay, so like we talked about with the first wave of feminism, I think she would be very happy that women have the right to vote. We are mostly treated similarly under the law. She'd be annoyed about the ERA like the rest of us. Um, and I think she would be annoyed about, like, the lack of women in public office. I definitely think she would be annoyed about the lack of women in public office. And I think based on the revolution, she would also be annoyed with the fact that women's reproductive rights are always called into question. I think that would annoy her. But I do think that generally she would be pleased with how we have come from really the 1800s. Yeah, I agree. And then the second part, social climate and treatment of people of color, I think she'd be very upset because it's just been a slippery slope. And yeah, yeah. I frankly, I think she'd be disgusted with this idea that um, she grew up, you know, thinking that a racially integrated society is the ideal and what we need to strive for. And Technically, we are a racially integrated society, but we really didn't make any movements past that. We just sort of let it fall. And I do think that would frustrate her. And just this idea that people still see um, skin color as a reason to judge someone would just probably astound her 200 years later. We're still facing that. Yeah. Yep, I think so too. And then finally... Do you think enough women are utilizing their right to vote? And you pulled a really good statistic for this. (laughs) So my statistic is from the Pew Research Center. Um, It's from the 2018 election. 55% of eligible women voted in 2018 compared to 51.8% of eligible men. So women did vote more in 2018. But here's my thing. 
part of me, it makes sense that only 50, only half of men vote because they've always had this right, so they're accustomed to it. We fought to be able to vote, and only half of us vote. Like, we fought and struggled for decades, and it just makes me kind of sad because it's like everyone should vote. Like, don't get me wrong. Everyone should vote. It is our right. We all pay taxes, but... The fact that we struggled for so long and only half of women vote kind of disgusts me. Here's what gets me. Their definition of eligible women, to be eligible to vote, you had to be considered registered. So, like, half of registered voters, not even half of women in the United States, like, oh my god, registered voters. So this is an even smaller number. But even if we just said half of half of women in the United States voted, you're still failing, bud. Like, you still have to retake that. Like, no credits awarded. And it's just so astounding to me that, like, this idea that voting isn't important. Voting isn't everything when it comes to activism. I would say voting is the most accessible first step to activism. So you start with voting and then you join some movement, whatever your movement is, if it's getting people registered to vote, if it's, you know, joining a political party and working with them, like, voting is really the first step to activism, and, like, you're not taking it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm just not really sure why. I think it would be, Um, this is my own personal views on it, like, I kind of wish that uh, people were able to be registered to vote like, when they get their driver's license, like, renewed even, like, I feel like that should be a part of that, because that is such a more commonly did, done thing, is getting your license, that maybe that's why, is that people just don't, don't do it. I think, honestly, it's just, first of all, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to not vote, to not think, I have to vote because my rights depend on this. Let's just be very frank about that. I don't care who you are. If you sit out an entire election, that is such a privileged statement. Like, um, but second of all, it's this idea that, like, in some states, it's actually very challenging to register to vote. So some states require wet signatures, which means it can't be done online. You have to print out a form and mail it in. Um, Some states don't offer same-day registration, so you have to know what day you have to register in advance. Um, You know, some states don't offer mail-in ballots, so you have to go to a poll. I feel like voting could definitely be more accessible Um, So when we say it's the most accessible step, it is, but it's not 100% accessible. Um, Frankly, I will not think that enough women are utilizing their right to vote until 100% of eligible women are voting. Like, I agree. That is your voice. You pay taxes. You pay these people. You should, like, if you think that managers don't have a say in who gets hired at a store you're wrong like they know who's on the payroll they have a part in that like you are essentially a manager for the government yeah so you should be managing them and voting and like it's so frustrating and it's so frustrating to see 51.8 percent of eligible men like everyone should be voting and what I think is so wild about this, this idea that more women voted than men, is that, or that a higher percentage, is that if you go on Twitter, there are still people who think women shouldn't have the right to vote. There are people who say, and you can do this on any social media, I saw it on Twitter first and was like, what? It, it was literally a woman who tweeted it. She was like, things were better when women didn't have the right to vote. Which implies really two things. Things were better when women couldn't vote, and things were better when only white property-owning men could vote. And if that's how you feel, that's disgusting. 
Yeah, I agree. Like, I'm open to most, like, opinions on voting, and a lot of people say, you know, not everyone should vote, because not everyone's educated on the matter, but, like, if you genuinely believe that only white property-owning men over the age of 21 should be voting, I can't respect that. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I can't. If you say to me, I disagree with the idea that everyone should vote because not everyone is educated, I agree we should work on educating people to be good voters. Like, I respect that opinion. I don't respect this idea that people should be denied a voice. I think that's, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think Stanton would also be, or not Stanton, Anthony, um, would also be really disgusted that she fought so hard, didn't get to vote legally, and not everyone's doing it. Some people are like, oh, I don't want to. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that was, like, a really good thing to end on, like, the idea that we all have rights and we should be utilizing them. And there are many resources, even if your state doesn't let you vote online, there are many online resources that you can go to that will help you get registered. Um, Rock the Vote is a great one. Vote 411 is run by the League of Women Voters. You know, um, most states have a voting website where you can go and find out your election laws. There are so many people you can reach out to. Um, And there are so many efforts on college campuses, in high school. I know Pennsylvania has an award for high schools if you register your students to vote. Um, Clarion University is involved in All In and Campus Vote. Um, Ask Every Student is a great organization. There are ways to keep yourself educated. So if you're not registered and if you were part of the 45% of eligible women who didn't vote in 2018, I encourage you to check out Vote 411, to check out Rock the Vote, or any website to see what you have to do to get registered. Really good. All right, well, we'll see you guys next week. Who are we talking about next week? We're talking about Marietta Bones, who is probably one of the most controversial um, because she does end up abandoning the movement at one point but is one of the coolest that we'll discuss this summer because she's from Clarion County. So she's very close to Caitlin Neisheart as Clarion University students. All right, well, make sure you guys go follow us on social media and like this episode, and we'll see you next week. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure you go out and register to vote.